You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Hey, good morning. Grab a seat. Whitney, thank you so much. Whitney and I have a rich history of me giving Whitney some of the most difficult passages to read. It is absolutely true. So give her a big round of applause. She's amazing. Um, So hey, do this. I want to invite you guys to snag a Bible. Um, you're going to need it. So, And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of these home. And if you're lucky today, you might get one that has some original artwork by some of our children um, or Nick Samens. So it's one of those two <laughs> options. Um, but yeah, feel free to grab that. So I'm going to invite you to do this with me right now. Grab a Bible. Turn directly to the table of contents. Because listen, there's no way that any of y'all are going to find Obadiah just by looking for it, right? So look at this. If you got that Bible, go down, Obadiah. I believe it's on, in this Bible, page 531. Is that correct? Yep. So turn right there. If you spend the whole time trying to find it on your own, and I know some of you are going to want to like, take that proud position, I found it on my own, just about the time that you find it, the sermon's going to be over, okay? So just get this. It's a short little book. It's only like you just saw it. We read the whole thing. 21 verses. It's actually the shortest book in the Old Testament, which is actually not a book at all. Here's what it is. It's an oracle of judgment. It's an oracle of judgment from God, and it reveals that this judgment is going to be directed at this particular people group, the Edomites. And if you listened to Whitney just read, um, it may sound unsettling at the forefront of it, but what we see is that this judgment that is coming for the Edomites will end in their destruction. So along with Jonah, this warning of judgment is not actually, again, delivered to ancient Israel, but a neighboring nation. So that's what kind of sets Obadiah aside. It's the shortest of all of these prophecies in the Old Testament, and it's not delivered to ethnic Israel. So let me pray, and we're going to jump in. I'm going to take a second, though, this morning... Um, and kind of make you guys aware of a family in our community that we need to be upholding in prayer and serving. So Kirk and Amy Thies have been with us for a few years. Some of you may be up to speed on this story, but a couple months ago, Amy was rushed into emergency brain surgery uh, to remove a tumor. And so she's been recovering from that. And then on the 30th of August, um, she's going to have another surgery. I think it's like they're down in like LA for this one. So in a couple days, um, she's going to be going through round two of this. Um, and as you can imagine, there's a lot of precision that needs to happen with this. And so we really want to uphold the thesis in prayer for this. And then also, there's an opportunity to serve them by jumping onto like a meal train. And so you can see Jesse about the meal train. We've got that set up. Or Jen right here. You can see Jen. And so if you'd like to sign up and when they get back, we want to just love on them and serve that family well. So I'm going to pray, and I'm also going to pray for Kirk and Amy and their kids, okay? So let me pray. Father, we so desperately need your presence here. And the beauty of that is that we don't need to invite you here. We know that you are so concerned and intimately involved in everything that's happening here amongst your people, in your church, not just here at Hub City, but in our city and around the world as your people gather to worship you. So may we just be awake to the fact that you are already here. You are already present, moving and working through your word, through your Holy Spirit, 
and through your people. And so, Father, we want to ask that as your word is proclaimed today, that the truth of your gospel would hit our hearts and transform us, causing us to live lives of obedience and richness in your kingdom for who you are, that we would proclaim the truth of that today to our hearts, that we would proclaim the truth of that tomorrow to our city. Um, We want to lift up the thesis right now. We pray that you would give them a deep sense of peace, knowing that you, as the great physician, hold them in your hands. Father, we pray for the team of surgeons, the whole medical staff that will be attending to Amy. Father, we pray that that you would just give this common grace to them, um, that we thank you for the abilities and skills that they have, and I just pray that this would go well for them. Um, We know that you're looking out for them. I pray for Kirk, that you would give him this deep sense of peace, that you are holding the life of his wife in your hands. Uh, We look forward to seeing them back here. And Father, we, we look forward to you writing a beautiful story here. May we love and serve them well. Would you be glorified in how you bring this community of people together to love one another and to love you. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so I'm just going to jump through verses 1 through 9 again. And again, it's going to be really tough to kind of understand what Obadiah is talking about, what I'm going to read to you guys, if you don't know what's going on. But let me just read this back to you guys, because I'm going to guess that these first nine verses are going to bring up all sorts of questions for you guys. We're going to hopefully answer some of those, but let me go back through it. So the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if plunderers come by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out, All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day declare the Lord, destroy the wise men of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter, Listen, it's not going to go well for the Edomites, right? So these first nine verses, um, they create really like the atmosphere and the direction for the, the whole book of Obadiah. And I understand, listen, you probably have more questions than you have answers at this point. Because here's the deal. There's a lot of vagueness around Obadiah. Like his name is just a boilerplate name for most prophets. It's not that interesting. It just means servant of Yahweh. Like, it would be more interesting if it was, like, something else. But so we don't, we don't know a lot about, we don't know who he was. We don't really know where he was from. We don't actually even know exactly when he lived, right? There's kind of two different schools of thought of that. But we do know this. We do know that God's apparently not happy, happy with these people, the Edomites. So here's what we need to do. We, we kind of got to dig into the story behind the story because if we can get some context 
from the story behind the story that we're looking at today. It's going to help us understand this more. So, and, and we're going to do this, right? Because I want you to understand where Edom comes from. They track their lineage from one man. So, so do this. Keep something, your finger, your, your neighbor's finger in the book of Obadiah. You don't want to lose it because um, otherwise you're never going to find it again. And turn to Genesis chapter 27. Let me just do a quick setup for what I want to show you. you. You might know this story, but if you don't, let me give you some backdrop to it. So we've got Isaac and Rebecca, and Isaac um, is Abraham's son, right? And, and, and Rebecca, it, she, she's pregnant with twins, and God says, inside of you, these two twins, you're going to have these two nations that are going to come from your children, right? And then it, it tells that these two twins are like wrestling in the tomb, right? So, so already, like they're, they're fighting each other in the womb, it, and their names are Jacob and Esau. And it says that Esau, he was red and hairy, his nickname was Edom. Esau is, is, you know, kind of this guy that you kind of get this picture, like he's kind of woodsy kind of fella. And then it describes Jacob as being like smooth, right? So you've got Esau, he's the uh, great outdoorsman. And then you've got Jacob, who's uh, the great indoorsman, okay? So, so Jacob then tricks Isaac into getting his blessing. So Esau comes out first. So he was the older and that blessing should have gone to the eldest, but then Jacob tricks his father, and he gets Esau's blessing. So that's the backdrop, and then let me read you this, right? Because the story goes on, and there's a lot of animosity between these two twin brothers. So check out Genesis 27, verse 39, and this kind of sets up this whole tension, right? In, in chapter 27, verse 39, this is what Isaac says to Esau. Then Isaac, his father, answered him and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him because it was supposed to be his blessing, right? And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob, right? So you get this picture that Esau is going to have a rough living ahead of him. So, um, but did you catch what he said at the end, right? He's saying, hey, the second dear old dad is dead, before the body's even cold, before we can even stick him in the ground, I'm going to kill my brother, right? Like this reads more like an episode of Jerry Springer than anything you'd expect to find in the Bible. So Rebecca hears about this, and she sends Jacob to go live with some distant relatives in order to save and preserve his life. He's got that blessing, that line of blessing is going to pour through him. So there's this, we have to keep in mind that there's this messianic blessing coming through now, Jacob, the younger brother, not the older brother, Esau. So she hears about this, she sends him off, and then Esau goes off into the wilderness like Bear grills and has to like carve out some type of existence on his own. So Esau's descendants become the Edomites, Jacob's descendants become ethnic Israel. So these, so they're like half-siblings, half-brothers kind of going on here, right? So, so these events depicted in Genesis are, well, the genesis of a family feud minus Richard Dawson creepily kissing anyone, which if you're over the age of 40, you'll understand that reference. So, um, so this family feud is going to last for generations to come, right? So to see how this plays out, 
we have to simply like fast forward 600 years. And if you don't know the story of Jacob's descendants, what happens to them is they become enslaved in Egypt for about 400 of those years. And while I don't have time to go into that whole story, eventually they're freed from their bondage and they flee Egypt. And this massive now caravan of former slaves they begin trekking through the desert on their way to this place, this destination called the land of promise. So to get to the land of promise, as they're going, this massive caravan is like hiking through the desert, through the wilderness, uh, this ragtag group of refugees, they have to cross through several borders of like nation states, okay? But there's one in particular that we should take note of, and guess what nation, very ironically, they now have to walk through to get to the promised land. It starts with an E. Come on, get it. Got it? Anybody? Who said Edom? Who said it? There you go. That is Edom. You get a star today. You got it. Okay. So let me just read this account to you. So look at how Moses handles this. Um, This is from the book of Numbers. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom, Again, like we got brother stuff happening here. These, these, are, these people are all related. Thus says your brother Israel. And this is going to read like much like what happens in my house when one of my kids goes into like some one of the other siblings' rooms, okay? This is the same as what happened. Okay, so thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we lived, lived in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city in the, on the edge of your territory. Please let us through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water. So we're not going to be a burden to you where we won't even drink water from a well. We will go along through the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left hand until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, Gandalf, you shall not pass through lest I come out with a sword against you, right? So this is a pe- this is family, and this is a people that said, we just endured 400 years of harsh, oppressive slave labor. Um, we, we don't have a lot, but we won't take anything from you. Your family, can we pass through? Nope. If you do, we're going to come out. With this, remember, remember what Esau said, as soon as dear old dad dies, I'm killing my brother, right? And so the people of Israel said to him, we will go up by the highway. If we drink of your water and I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him, right? So that's the backdrop to the story that we're looking at that's happening in Obadiah. Now, there's more details that we're going to get to, right? But their history is filled with contention and turmoil. And now fast forward to the book of Obadiah. In those first nine verses, we see God's judgment against the Edomites. All the nations, right? This is what's happening. Obadiah is saying to the Edomites, All the nations are going to despise you and hate you. All of your wise men are going to die. And everyone that lives up on Mount Edom or Mount Esau is going to be destroyed. It's it's brutal to our modern sensibilities to hear God saying this, right? But we need to ask why. 
Like, why is this oracle coming to the Edomites? So, so we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning rocking through the problems that God had against the Edomites. So first one is this, right? Is that Edom took pride in their position. So the first thing that God really says to them is that you are a prideful people, and I am God, and guess what? I don't like pride. And it speaks right into that in verse 2 of Obadiah. God says, behold, I will make you small among the nations. Imagine telling somebody that's super proud, super narcissistic, that I'm going to make you small, right? Like, what do they do in that? Like, no way. They fight. They contend, right? So I'm going to make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Who can defeat us? Look at us, right? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So we should ask, like, what's so great about Edom? Like, what's the big deal with Edom? What did they have going for them that was so special? What were they taking pride in? Well, to begin with, because of the geography of the land, they essentially had this impenetrable rock fortress, right? It was helms deep. Nothing could breach its borders. That's what they believed. And because of that security, right, they were able to make powerful political and military alliances with their neighboring nations. It also afforded them the opportunity to amass great and vast wealth. They had great scholars and wise men serving them. They had this incredible infrastructure to their cities. It's just this laundry list of assets that they had going for them. But then God shows up and says, you are so boastful and proud. You look down on everyone else around you thinking that you're indestructible, thinking you're special because the people in your community are well above the average income of any Anyone else around you, inflating your egos because you live in a place of highly educated and trained and equipped scholars. You put your trust in yourself and believe all of this, right? You believe in your own security and safety. You believe that that is found in you because of your accomplishments and what you have. And God says, I've got an issue with you being proud about that. So we have this part of us, right? as like a fallen humanity and in our sin nature that always tries to make us proud of what we think that we have accomplished or accumulated. We trust in our performance. We depend on our measures of success. But look at what God says in verse 3 of Obadiah. The pride of your heart has deceived you. So when you take pride in your accomplishments and what you have and what you've accumulated and your performance, God is saying that's only going to, that's only going to deceive you. It's only going to deceive your heart away from my heart. So God's word provides us with so many warnings, so many indications on how God feels about pride. He opposes the proud, right? I'm not going to read a bunch of verses to you, but if you don't know, God's not a fan of the proud, right? I think Obadiah reveals this. I think Obadiah reveals that pride is predominantly a relational problem, right? It's a relational problem. Let me add some depth to this. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity describes this. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Like, see how this fires for the Edomites. They're literally above everyone else. They have more than everyone else. Once the element of competition is gone, 
pride is gone. So you see this being played out in the book of Obadiah in this message to the Edomites. Like you look down on people and you just want more and you're going to take more and more, right? So the heart, this heart attitude of pride is exactly what we see being played out here. This is, this is just strike one against the Edomites, right? This is just the beginning, right? And their pride, but what their pride leads them to, what their pride leads them to is devastating, not only for them, but for their brother nation, Judah, right? So let's move on. Verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother, Jacob. So see how Obadiah and God through him is like pulling us back to this story, right? We got to keep the story of blessing in mind here. We got to keep the story of Jacob and Esau in mind here. Jacob's long dead, but because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. You guys are brothers. Like, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On that day, the day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. God's saying, because you didn't believe in the promises that I made to Jacob, instead of placing your hope that I would be true and fulfill them, the promises that through Abraham, that through Isaac, that through Jacob, that all nations would be blessed and invited to live life in my shalom-filled kingdom, because you didn't trust in that promise, instead, you trusted in yourself and your own performance and your own accomplishment, and you actually sided with the enemies of my people, which is the same as siding against me. You celebrated in Judah's oppression and suffering. You stood aloof and did nothing, and because you did nothing, you're just like the ones who perpetrated this grave injustice against my people. Because of that, my judgment and wrath is now centered on you, Edom, and that will be your demise, right? When, 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 when God is saying, when my image bearers don't stand with those that are being oppressed, right? Then, then judgment is coming. That, that particular arc finds its way all through the Bible. It actually finds that, that pattern of like cruelty and celebrating the unjust suffering of the innocent, that, that, that finds its arc all the way through scripture, and it finds its terminus in Jesus's day, right? As the religious authorities would sit idly by and watch Jesus suffer, as they stood aloof, protecting and preserving their own position of power, rather than identifying with the suffering servant, the one in whom all of God's promises to Abraham are yes and true, totally missing the meaning of Jesus, saying the kingdom of God is for those who humble themselves, for those who do not seek to preserve their power, but who find refuge in the rejected cornerstone, my Messiah. So strike two is really about Edom's response when they saw their neighbors and brothers being oppressed and treated with injustice. Their response as their brothers cried out for justice was indifference. They did nothing to stop the injustice. So God's saying, because you stood back and did nothing, you're just as guilty as the people who raped and pillaged my kids. You saw the need, you saw injustice and oppression, and you did nothing. Now church, we would do well to pay attention to Obadiah. The cultural moment that we've been living in demands that we first and foremost engage and understand the justice of God. 
This is a call and a cry for us to understand that at the very core of the heart and character and nature of God is justice. It is what we as a people then should live out. Now listen, I get it. That Just that conversation for some of you might cause you to recoil in defense, right? Because there's a lot to talk about in that, right? But we need to dig into that, right? We need to see the need, right? We need to listen to the cries of our brothers and sisters as they cry out about the injustice that's happening to them. We need to first listen, and then we need to understand that at the very core and character of God is justice, right? So we should pay attention to Obadiah, right? And and the demands that we should listen to the cries of injustice around us from culture, from our brothers and sisters, and not stand aloof. Now listen, right? This isn't a message where we can articulate and exhaust all of God's justice, okay? But it is a message about the fact that God's heart is broken over injustice. His heart is for the oppressed, and he cannot tolerate when injustice is ignored or excused by his people, especially when it keeps the powerful, when they are kept in power by injustice, okay? So listen, I'm going to read an excerpt from a book that I just picked up. This is just from the forward, which is far as I've gotten, so I'm not going to mention the book because I don't know whether I'm going to endorse it or not. But the forward was written by John M. Perkins. Now, if you know John M. Perkins, him and his wife, Vera, have dedicated 60 years of their life to like gospel-centered mission and justice, okay? And so I just want to read this to you. He's a famed and storied pastor, a civil rights activist, and this is his suggestion in the forward of this book for this generation that hears the cries of justice, sees at times an impotent church that stands aloof to it, that recoils because we're intimidated by it, and this is, this is what he starts with. If, I'm, if what I'm about to read, listen, if what I'm about to read causes you to like, like on this hand, like get frustrated and be like, that can't be it. Or if it causes you to say, well, that's not enough. Like the gospel isn't enough. Like, like you need to listen to that and listen to what he says. I'm going to read a little bit of his biography. He says this, I was born on a Mississippi cotton plantation in 1930. My mother died of nutrition deficiency when I was just seven months old. My big brother, a World War II veteran, was gunned down by a town marshal when, he was, when I was 17 years old. As a civil rights activist, I was jailed and beaten nearly to death by police. They tortured me without mercy, stuck a fork up my nose and down my throat, then made me mop up my own blood. I have known injustice. He says, through my 60 years of working for justice, I offer four admonishments for the next generation of justice seekers. First, start with God. God is bigger than we can imagine. We have to align ourselves with his purpose, with his will, his mission to let justice roll down and bring forgiveness and love to everyone on earth. The problem of injustice is a God-sized problem. If we don't start with him first, whatever we're seeking, it ain't justice. Second, be one in Christ. Christian brothers and sisters, black, white, brown, rich, and poor, we are family. We are one blood. We are adopted by the same father, saved by the same son, filled with the same spirit. If we give a foothold to any kind of tribalism that could tear down that unity, then we aren't bringing God's justice. Third, 
preach the gospel, the gospel of Jesus' incarnation, his perfect life, his death as our substitute, and his triumph over sin and death is good news for everyone. It is multicultural good news. In the blood of Jesus, we are able to truly see ourselves as one race, one blood. Christ alone can break down the barriers of prejudice and hate we all struggle with. There is no power greater than God's love expressed in Jesus. Man, there should be an amen there. Thank you, guys. That's where we all find real human dignity. If we replace the gospel with, this, with any man-made ideology, then we ain't doing biblical justice. Let me just pause for a second. Let me encourage you right now, church. We should listen. We should listen to those man-made ideologies. We should listen. Where is there good news in them? Where is the gospel in there? Does it, do a lot of them break with the gospel? Absolutely, right? But we should pay attention to the culture's cries and ideas of justice because we need to listen and find truth in it and then proclaim the truth of the gospel into that, okay? And then fourth and finally, teach truth. Without truth, there can be no justice. God's word is the standard of truth. If we're trying to trying harder to align with the rising opinions of our day than with the Bible, then we ain't doing real justice. So, man, the rest of what we're going to talk about in Obadiah is all along the vein of injustice being perpetrated as people stood aloof to injustice. So let's, let's keep rocking through this. The next point is really tied into the previous point. It's going to expand on it a little bit. Verse 12, but do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So, the third strike against the Edomites is that they saw their vulnerable and oppressed brother nation that were being victimized and oppressed. And not only did they do nothing, they also took advantage of them for their own gain, profiting off people's persecution and pain. So what's going on here is that Judah had been ransacked and taken over by Babylon. And their neighbors and brothers, the Edomites, did nothing to help, right? And not only did they not help, when the gates of Judah came crashing down, the Edomites swept in from up on high in their lofty, prideful position and ransacked and picked over the bodies like a bunch of vultures, robbing and looting. And the few remaining Israelites, as they fled the city, right, the few of them that were not killed as they fled with whatever they could carry, the, the last possessions that they had, the Edomites met them at the crossroads and slaughtered them to steal whatever possessions they had left. If they had no possessions, then they would sell those Israelites into slavery to the Babylonians. And God's saying, yes, when you don't stand up for them, the vulnerable, the oppressed, the victimized, but when you actually capitalize on their misfortunes, that will bring my wrath and my fury and my judgment against you. Let's then jump here to the end in verse 17, and we're going to wrap up here. Listen, I get it. Like, some of you might be like, oh, this is a lot, and God's judgment, and he's going to destroy a people. Like, is there, it's harsh, and it's brutal, right? 
like all of it. And, and maybe you're wrestling with this idea of like the destruction of uh, like, how can this mesh with my idea of God and his wrath and his judgment? Like, how is this in the Bible? How is this the gospel? Well, well, if, if there's good news in this, if even if it's a sliver of hope, it comes in these last few verses, right? Remember, God has promised the Edomites that he will destroy them. Beginning in verse 17, though, we see this shift. The focal point of Obadiah's prophecy moves from, from the Edomites onto God's people. And, and there's good news in this. In his grace, he gives them respite and, respite and, and refuge from his wrath. Listen, but in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor of the house, for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Cephalah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and, the, and Benjamin shall possess the Gilead. The exiles of his, this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as the Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Okay, so here's what God, through his prophet Obadiah, is saying. God's judgment, yes, is coming. It's coming for every nation, including ethnic Israel. But in his grace, some will escape it, and they will join Israel. Even some of the Edomites will stand in this forever city and the consummation of God's forever kingdom. There will be Edomites joining with us, singing worship to our good king. And if you look at verse 18, he's saying, if you stay in the house of Esau, if you stay in your prideful position, if you stay and take pride in your performance and believe that somehow you can find refuge and respite in your performance or in what you've accumulated or in your success, if you stay in your pride, if you stand aloof to grave injustices, but actually then go and participate and profit off of them, you're doomed. You're doomed to destruction. No one who stays in the house of Esau will survive. But he also delivers a great message of hope and grace. Even to those who are born into the house of Esau, if you submit to the righteous and reigning king who comes from the line of Jacob, God's Messiah, you will be my people forever. And despite Edom's future being bleak and set, there's hope. But hope means repenting and turning from Edom and returning to Yahweh. And it's no different for us. We are guilty just like Edom. But there's an escape in Jacob, and his name is Jesus, who was not sinfully filled with pride. He did not gloat over the oppressed and victimized. Jesus would not exploit or kill his brothers, but would instead be killed for his brothers. Jesus would not sit idly while his brothers suffered a grave injustice, but would step up and bear the weight of the Father's justice for his brothers. In Jesus, we are redeemed, 
instead of repaid. In Jesus, we are blessed instead of cursed. In Jesus, we are made sons and daughters of God, adopted into his families instead of remaining enemies. In Jesus, we get protection rather than punishment. Verse 20, these 21 verses in Obadiah calls us to not be like Edom, but to be the church, to join the global movement of Jesus' followers with who refuse to stand aloof and turn deaf ears to the cries of injustice around us and refuse to watch as broken and hopeless people continue to be victimized and oppressed, but to be the people of God who would speak the gospel, the good news, so that the justice of God can roll down into the hopeless and harmed so that they would see life and be restored. Church, that is our great mission. Stay in Edom and we're destroyed. Live life in Jacob's house and be redeemed and then join his great mission of restoration. That's why we exist in this city. We exist in this city to hear the cries of injustice, listen and move and act on behalf of our great king. I believe God has revealed his heart to us this morning. We learn from Obadiah we have a great God who at the very core of his heart, at the very core of his nature, is justice. That is what we are to be about as a people. Let's respond rightly. We get to go to this table in a moment, and we get to feel, and we get to receive, and we get to participate in a form of God's justice as it was poured out onto his son, as his body was broken, as his blood was spilled justice of God coming down onto a substitute. We deserved it. Jesus stood in our place. He received the full wrath and justice of God for us. And it's crazy that we get to go to that table and take that bread and take that cup and receive grace still.